How do we find wisdom, guidance, and love to live in a politically toxic, raged, anxious climate? How do we find wisdom, guidance, and love to live with wisdom and love in the midst of a politically toxic, outraged, anxious cultural moment. That's what we're going to explore today. I want to invite you as we study together from Ephesians chapter 3 and 4 just to be thinking about that concept. How do we find wisdom, guidance, and love to live wisely and lovingly in the midst of a politically toxic, outraged, anxious cultural moment? This uh, thought process for me is uh, something that not only tethers to Scripture, but also tethers a little bit to my history. Uh, I want to invite you to meet uh, two of my great, great times eight grandfathers. They've died. <laughs> so on the left, you have uh, the grave of uh, William Campbell. So William Campbell is one of my ancestors, and I actually got to visit uh, his uh, tombstone. One of my objectives kind of in life is when I'm able to travel to places for like school or for work, uh, if any of my ancestors are buried there, I make it a point to uh, drive out and visit. And I was able to visit uh, William's uh, graveside in New York City just a few months ago. Uh, William actually was buried um, in the 1760s. He was buried, and 20 years after he was buried, uh, he, the church that he's buried at, the Dutch Reformed Church he was buried at, there was a trial of Major John Andre, who was one of the British spies who spied on America. That was 20 years after he died. Uh, on the right, uh, I'd like to introduce you to one of my other great, great times eight grandfathers. Uh, this is Conrad Weisse. Conrad was a captain in the Revolution, uh, the Revolutionary War. His grandfather, Joseph Conrad Weisse, came to America as a refugee from the Holy Roman Empire seeking refuge and actually fought in the uh, 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 French and Indian War, and actually served alongside Ben Franklin, brokering peace treaties and things like this. And so this is just some of my family. Um, now, I did want to say, uh, you know, there's other graves I haven't been to yet, so stay tuned. <laughs> Hopefully there's some other cool stuff. But one of the things that I, I frequently will think about and meditate on is, is I've thought about my family and my family line, many, many of whom have been uh, operating either in uh, the colonial era or in um, the, the post-revolutionary area where they were, many of them were uh, Christian, or at least they're buried in Christian cemeteries. I don't, I didn't meet them yet, so I don't know what their faith journey is like with Jesus, but I'm guessing that they participated in church gatherings just based on the records. And I've often thought about this question, how did they apply their faith in the midst of a democratic republic that oftentimes can find itself in a toxic space. So I want you to know, and I don't think this will bring you peace, <laughs> but it'll at least bring you some context. The tension that we feel now in this particular cultural moment in America, it's not the first time. It's not the first time. In fact, one of the things that, <laughs> that I find so fascinating is there's just, this seems to be this cyclical pattern in this democratic republic of ours where uh, there's kind of, uh, there, there's seasons where it's like on a low burn and then there's seasons where it's on a high burn. In fact, uh, some of the people that, that we generally venerate uh, as leaders or founders of our country, you write the stuff that they wrote about each other, it's hot fire. 
hot fire. And so I, I wonder, okay, so how did, how did uh, William and uh, Conrad, how did they think about their faith in this, in this blossoming or, or this new republic, this new concept, this democratic republic? How did they apply it when you've got things like voting and you've got things like uh, election cycles and things like that? And so I, I think frequently about that. And, and I wonder, what, what did they, how did they process their faith in the midst of questions around things like the Louisiana Purchase or things like uh, the concept of manifest destiny? How did they think about uh, the difference between a federalized government and a more states-powered government? How, how did they process the fighting between John Adams, uh, who uh, was um, a federalist, and then Thomas Jefferson, who is a Democratic Republic, and the fact that they all called each other mean names all the time? How did, how did Conrad and William live loving their neighbor in the midst of warfare? How did they do it? It's something that I find myself meditating on a lot. And in this particular cultural moment, we have a politically toxic, outraged, anxious cultural reality. You can feel it dri driving up Tatum Boulevard. Before the primaries, there were uh, thousands upon thousands of, of markers, right, and, and ads. You guys have seen these things before, these political ads? Now, how many of them, and you don't need to answer this question, but are, are you encouraged? Right? It's generally dehumanizing, fear-mongering, anxiety-producing content that you're just, I mean, just driving up Tatum. Like, I, I work at a church. I'm driving to a church. I serve the Prince of Peace. And I'm driving down the street, and I'm like, <laughs> if I don't vote for that person, the whole world's going to implode. Well, what this person says the same thing, and they're on the opposite team. What am I to do? And then there's, uh, my favorite is when people go up and, like, they draw little mustaches on people, you know, like, <laughs> like I want to meet that person. Like, hey, man, you got a good mustache game going, I got to tell you. Right? But it's just, even for me, just driving up, like driving to work every two years, there's this season, this moment where I'm, and then, hold on now, how do you feel when you're going to have some family or close friends over and you know that they're on the other side? And you say things, you know, you say you're cooking dinner and you're like, oh, this is our family. This is our blood. These are people we love. But here's what we can't talk about. Boom, 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 boom. Because if we talk about these things, we're going to be raging at each other. Now, let me just ask you a question. What is training us to be outraged at the very people that we love? I, I found it fascinating. Just hold on with me now. I want you to come on. Let's go. I, I think it may be an imbalance that our temporary, hold on now, our temporary allegiances to a person running for office who we've never met nor will ever meet us is so radically influencing us that we're willing to separate ourselves from our family because they don't share that same allegiance. And here's the thing, in this democratic republic with like uh, term limits and stuff like that, the allegiances keep changing. But, so do our family and friends need to experience this radical division every time we take on a new allegiance? I, that doesn't sound wise or loving to me. How about you? No, okay, thank you. Okay, just wanted to make sure we're, <laughs> we're tracking here. Um, man, oh man. Okay, so let's get, let's get after it. So how does Jesus, 
Give us a God-centered wisdom and a spirit-empowered love to live in a politically charged, outraged, anxiety-saturated cultural context. So I want to invite you, as we study Ephesians uh, chapter 3 and 4, it's in your handouts. For those joining us online, just go to Bible.com, and we're using the Christian Standard Bible. Uh, I'd encourage you to bring your Bibles. If you have a Bible, uh, regardless of what translation, uh, just we're going to be in Ephesians 3 and 4. And in this sermon series called Manifold Wisdom, we're exploring the nature of the church, and hold on to this, the nature of the manifold or diverse or many-colored or many-faceted, that's what manifold means, that many-faceted wisdom of God being made known through the church. You're going to see it in the text today. We're talking about, to put it in another way, what's the role and function of the church? Okay, that's what we're talking about throughout this whole series. And today, I'd like to lean into uh, this concept of how the church, and the church is not an institution, the church is an organism, the church is Jesus' followers. How do the collection of Jesus' followers engage in a political climate where not only is there a ton of outrage and anxiety, but also there's a lot of co-opting of the church. What I mean by that is, it seems like God is co-signing everybody running for office right now. And I just want to know, is that a biblical wisdom? Or is that something else? Now, I heard some groans which means you've watched the end of the movie. So (laughs) don't spoil it for the rest of us, but let's take a look. So you guys come with me. We're going to be Ephesians chapter uh, 3 and 4. I'm going to jump around just a little bit, but I'll have the citations up on the screen. Also, I did want to make note, uh, this conversation about government and poli- uh, excuse me about government politics and, and, and faith in Jesus there's it's just there's a thousand questions and I want to invite you to text in your questions uh, on the one of the pages uh, where the notes are there's a phone number there and so here's what we're going to do uh, for the duration of this series is you can text in questions it can be directly related to the sermon or the text or it could be from like last week or something else about faith and religion um, and you text those questions in and then at 11 o'clock I'm going to gather in here with as many of you all that want to, and I'll go through and I'll respond to the best of my ability to any question that you send in. And so uh, we believe as Desert Springs Bible Church in a, a having Jesus-centered conversations around hard issues. Politics is one of them, and I would love to engage with you on that. So again, we'll meet back in here at 11 o'clock for a sermon uh, question and response. You can just text those questions into that number uh, that you'll see there. Um, Also, we've got a variety of different classes, some that are currently meeting, some that are going to be starting up here in a couple weeks, like the Rooted group that Don mentioned. And you can find more about those 11 o'clock classes and studies in your handout. You can notice when they start. And if you haven't done Rooted yet, I want to highly encourage you, you got to do Rooted. It is chef's kiss. (laughs) Wonderful. All right, so let's get into it. This is Ephesians uh, chapter 3, verse 8. This grace, so this is the Apostle Paul. He's writing to a church in Ephesus. Oh, by the way, you got to check this out. Ephesus was like the third largest metropolitan area in the Roman Empire. It was uh, bested only by Alexandria and Rome. So Ephesus was this massively successful, militarily powerful, economically thriving, religiously uh, saturated major metropolitan area. Does that sound familiar? And what's interesting is, is in Ephesus, just like maybe today, religion, money, and power often wove themselves together. 
And so, for instance, in uh, Ephesus, there was this, uh, one, of the, one of the primary gods that they worshipped was Artemis, Artemis. And so Artemis, at the temple of Artemis, not only would you experience worship in the temple, you would also could experience at the temple refuge. And you know what else they did at the temple of Artemis? Banking. You would bank out of the, uh, uh, the temple of Artemis. And uh, the coinage, uh, some of the coinage that it was in Ephesus of the day had uh, the goddess Artemis on it. They would call Artemis uh, the savior or the queen lady. And so if you were a Christian kicking around Ephesus, the idea of, of money, power, and religion, it was just everywhere. And so Paul is writing to a very small group of Jesus followers living in Ephesus, and he's trying to give to them a Jesus-centered wisdom so that they might know how to, in this politically charged environment where religion, power, and money are all interwoven, how then to live in wisdom and love. That's what Paul's writing to, in, uh, to the Ephesian church about. And so do you think that might have some relevance for us today? This grace was given to preach, uh, by the way, in your notes, on occasionally I'll transliterate a Greek word, and it's for a reason. So to preach to the ethnicin, and that word, oh, excuse me, that word uh, is, let me turn the pen on here. Can you guys see this? And that, I feel like John Madden. I'm so proud of myself with this thing. Okay, so that word often gets translated, uh, if you have your Bible open, it'll probably get translated as Gentiles or the nations. The reason that I re- leave it in there is because it very much sounds like a word that we use in English, namely ethnicity, and it is closer to ethnicity than it is uh, to like a geopolitical reality. When we say nation in modern English, usually we think of the nation state, like a thing with borders. But ethnicity is generally not as bordered. It's more like what are the commonalities that we have with each other, which is ethnicity. So culture, language, food, art, things like that. That's kind of what makes up an ethnicity. And so this is all of the peoples of the world, okay? All the ethnos of the world. Uh, The grace was given to preach to all the ethnos the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. What's the mystery? This is the mystery. That the manifold wisdom of God might be made known through the church to the rulers, authorities, in the heavenly places. TV time out. Notice what the Apostle Paul is saying to this little house church, this little group of house churches in Ephesus. That the manifold, multicolored, uh, diverse wisdom of God will be put on display through what? The church. Do you see it in the text? That the church will put on display the manifold wisdom of God. And this is crazy to me. To whom? Talk to me now. To whom? You guys see it there at the bottom? The rulers, authorities, where? Okay, this is not, you got to ask me this question in the question and response time because I, I ain't got time for this right now. But listen to me. The Apostle Paul sees uh, behind any earthly king or ruler, he sees behind it a spiritual king and ruler. This is how the Jewish mind worked. And so you're just going to have to deal with that. But he says that that power, what I would call the kingdoms of this world, where those two things are usually united, the kingdoms of this world, they see the manifold wisdom of God on display through what? Through the church, which is made up of what? All of the people groups, all the ethnos. When all the ethnos are all the misfits, come on now, all the misfits, when they're all bound together with nothing in common except for Jesus, 
then they put on display the manifold wisdom of God. What's the job of the church? It's to be united around Jesus, a bunch of diverse people united around Jesus, putting on display the wisdom of God. That's the job of the church. Let me ask you, okay, I'm just going to hit you. I'm going to get at you. The job of the church is not to govern the state. Okay, I've been hearing some folks, and they've been talking like this. They've been saying things like the church should run the government, but that ain't the church's job. That is not the church's job. If the church takes the posture of running the government, it will no longer be a transnational entity. So, come on, come with me now. If the job of the church is to bring together all the ethnos, and generally speaking, governments, I'm not saying this is bad. You guys got to hear me on this. I'm just talking to you neutrally here. And the job of government, human government, is to create borders to let some people in and keep most people out. Can the church then be the government? It can only lie to itself if it tries to do that because the job of the church is for, to preach all the ethnos and say everyone gets to come in. So, so you just got to hear, I'm just talking neutrally to you. Like this is poli-sci one-on-one. Governments are bordered entities. The church, is it a, is it a bordered entity? So you can't have the two things. In fact, I would, just, I would just challenge you, if you want to get weird, after you go home today and you read through your whole Bible, pick up a Western civilization history book and just notice how many times that the government or government power tried to co-opt the church and tell me how well-preserved was the witness of the church. How well was Jesus represented at the end of a sword? Y'all tracking with me so far? Okay, all right. If you try to merge the church with Rome, Rome wins and just uses the church to justify its power. So y'all got me preaching. All right, let's keep going. Okay, like this is the job of the church. Okay, now TV time out. Some of y'all are asking, Caleb, does that mean that Christians should not be involved in government? By no means. Come with me now. I think Christians should absolutely be involved in government and they should practice love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control in their office of public, what's the word, public Yeah, we should. I, but, but okay, okay, let me be, okay, here we go. Is the posture of a Jesus follower to reach out and take power so that I can preserve me and mine? Or is the posture of a Jesus follower to use whatever power the Lord would gift to me through following him by the power of his spirit, use that power in service of others? And before you answer the question, let me just ask you this question. There's a king in the Bible. His name is Jesus. And King Jesus calls us to follow him. And King Jesus says, follow, take up your... So how did Jesus use his power? To protect his own or in the service of others? It's in the service of others. Now, most of us will say things like, Caleb, that's not how the world works. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> that's why we worship the risen king and not the kings of this world. Because allegiance to the kings of this world leads in despair and death. That's why it is, what's the word? Good news that King Jesus is the eternal king. 
So yeah, you're right. It makes no political strategy sense to live like Jesus, and that is the point. You will not change the world living by the power structures and principles of this world. Nobody will look at that and say, wow, you're really different. All right, come on, let's keep going. We're going to make it through, I promise today. Yeesh. All right. So the job of the church is to put on display the manifold wisdom of God. How do we do that? Well, there's certain leadership. He gave, uh, not leadership, giftings. Here are the giftings. He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers. Some of those phrases are weird to many of us. Don't let it be weird. These are just people with different giftings that are called to do this job. Check this out. What's the job? Equip the saints for what? There's that word again. The other word to be translated there is ministry, for the work of ministry. What's ministry? Yeah, and what's service? It's ministry, okay? Uh, By the way, when a person says, I'm a minister, you could just as easily say, I'm a servant. It's just kind of weird to say that right now in American context, so we use minister, right? But that's what the word means. How long will we do it? Or excuse me, what does that end in? Building up of the body of Christ, that is the church, until we attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature belonging to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer, okay, so what he's saying here is that we're to be built within the church as we're a bunch of misfits putting on display the manifold wisdom of God, unified around Jesus. We're revealing the manifold wisdom of God, but we're also growing in the process. How are we growing? We're growing into the likeness of whom? Yet we're becoming more and more like Jesus as we in good faith give ourselves to one another, as we in good faith allow the Spirit to come in and work among us, we actually, God will use our differences to shape and to reshape us. Like, listen, if you're looking for a church family that's just going to reaffirm your prejudices and commitments, you're in the wrong joint. Like, I'm 40, okay? Do you think that I've got it like, you can answer honestly here, I know you will. Do you think I've got it like totally dialed in this whole faith and politics thing? No. no, especially those of you who disagree with me about the political implications of my faith, right? You're like, I wish you would convert and believe the gospel. I know, I know. <laughs> I got I got it. You're going to, thank you. You are going to, you are going to, in our differences, you are going to shape me and I'm going to shape you, hopefully if we approach each other with curiosity instead of suspicion, if we approach one another practicing the fruit of the Spirit. And in that unity, that Jesus-centered unity of a bunch of misfits, we put on display the manifold wisdom of God, and Jesus uses our differences to shape us to be more and more like him so that we will become wise. We will become wise. And if we are wise and anchored in who God is, if we are anchored in who God is, notice this, what's the result if we're anchored in Jesus, a Jesus-centered wisdom? That we are no longer tossed around by every wind and wave of teaching. That some crafty leader is not going to come in and lead us astray or trick us into doing something that we know is contrary to what Jesus teaches. If we're anchored, if we're wise, then we are no longer like children in a boat in a storm, but we're anchored to who Jesus is. You guys seeing the metaphor here? 
There are powers at work constantly throughout human history and in the year of our Lord 2020, Phoenix. There are powers at work who are trying to knock us around to create anxiety and fear, to demand our allegiance by promising us safety, belonging, and purpose so that we will give our money and our power to them. And Jesus says, be anchored in me. Be anchored. If you're becoming more and more like me, you'll be able to withstand this chaos, this chaos that's just pounding up against your boat. You'll be able to withstand the trickery of men, the craftiness and deceitful scheming. Y'all think there's any craftiness and deceitful scheming going around? That should have been like a wholehearted amen, I think. I mean, good gosh. How are we supposed to behave? Okay, so are we supposed to retreat? No, I I don't think so. If I could say so uh, neutrally, government is simply the way that we do our common life together. Like 98% of government is not a bunch of like chaos. Like 98% of government is just boring stuff like keeping the roads going. Now, I know some of y'all, when you drive down the roads, you get rain, ragey, you get a little anxiety. So we'll acknowledge that. But by and large, the majority of government is just the boring stuff about keeping our, it's the It's the sewage system. It's the water treatment facility. It's the electrical grid. It's how we do our common life together. So let me ask you this question. If we are to love our neighbor as ourself, I mean, in this case, actual neighbor, should we say, I don't want anything to do with government and how it works? Like, I don't want anything to do with clean water. I don't want anything to do with making sure that you have an electrical grid that makes sure that you don't die a heat death. Right? So, so we're to, I, I believe that government is, because it's managing our common life together now, it's a means of loving our neighbor as ourself. And for each person, you, maybe you guys are asking, well, what does he mean? Should I run for office? I think for some, yeah, maybe. I think for most of us, it's just being aware and using the gifting that God has gifted us with and saying, Lord, how do you want me to be a servant, a minister? How do you want me to do the work of ministry in this community, in this common life together? Uh, one of the key initiatives that we're a part of is uh, foster care and adoption. I know that many of you are uh, currently fostering or have adopted. And do you know how much government is involved in that? Do you think a little or a lot? A lot. And do we care about that? Yes, we very much care about that. Now, how are we going to engage in that? I think that's for each of us to discern by the power of the Spirit. But our general disposition, and my, my take on the Scripture, is to look for means of service. And in a democratic republic in 2022, one of the ways that we get to do that is through the political process. So it's not, I'm not arguing for an abstaining from government, but rather it's the heart and our approach to government. So what should our approach be uh, in this toxic, ragey, anxious environment? Check it out. Speaking the truth, how? Yeah. So like if, um, uh, here's a test. If I speak what I think is the truth and the person on the other end didn't feel loved, Am I in alignment with this text? So, so just because I think I'm right, if they don't feel loved, have I lived out this text? No, it's, it's truth and love. So here's a way to say it. Uh, this is a test I run on myself, like a self-scan as much as I can. Do those with whom I disagree see Jesus in me? 
Do those with whom I disagree see Jesus in me? My, my hope is that my opinion on or perspective on the truth, when I communicate that, would never blind someone to the glorious love and grace of Jesus as it's seen lived out imperfectly through me. But my temptation is to try to win the argument. But I can win the argument and lose the person. Hmm? So, so whenever I'm going to speak truth, whatever my perspective on the truth is, if the other person doesn't feel loved, then I need to go back to the drawing board and say, okay, maybe, maybe I need to rethink my approach there. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects of him who is the head, even Christ, from who the whole, I love this, whom the whole body, how much of the body? Okay, this transnational organism, the body of Christ, being fit and held together by what every joint supplies, meaning everyone's got a job to do, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up itself in love. So how does the church grow? When all of us are ministering according to our gifting in unity and love centered around Jesus. Now, you want to know how to grow a church? That's how you grow a church. All right, let's keep going. <laughs> do you think this has anything to do with the topic today? Uh, therefore, putting away all... Come on. Speak the truth, each one to his neighbor, because we are, notice this, members of one another. Be and do not... So this idea of anger without sin is this posture. Anger is that thing we feel when we want the other person to experience wholeness. I know this is strange for many of us, but, but the, the passion I feel in here when you and I, if, if I love you and you and I are, are disintegrated, if our relationship is broken, anger is the thing I feel that wants that to be made right for your benefit and mine as well. Rage is when I treat you like an enemy and want your destruction. Got it? So yeah, be angry. Be angry for one another, that we could be made whole, that we could see the way of truth more clearly, but don't sin into rage, treating the other as an enemy to be destroyed. And I want to caution you, church, oh my goodness, I hear this all the time in political discourse today. Dehumanizing, enemying language. I mean, think about the rhetoric that we're hearing. We need to fight the culture war. What happens when you fight a war? Somebody dies. Is that really what we're trying to do here? Is utterly destroy our neighbor? We're going to fight, right? Think about that language. We're going to fight. We're going to crush them. We're going to own them. We're going to destroy them. Is that, honest to God, is that actually what we're really trying to do to our neighbor who disagrees with us on policies? So, so we're going to speak to our neighbor. How? We're going to speak truth to them. Why? Notice this. We are members of one another. We, belong, we are together. And so we speak the truth to our neighbor because we are members. Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't give the devil an opportunity. Let the thief no longer steal. Instead, he is to do honest work with his own hands so that he has something to share with anyone in need. Let no foul language come out of your mouth, but only, listen to this, only what is good for building up someone in need. Does that have any shaping effect on my political discourse? 
Okay. Give grace to those who hear. And don't grieve God's Holy Spirit. You were sealed by him for the day of redemption. Let all, check it, bitterness, anger, wrath, shouting and slander, hello, shouting and slander, be removed from you along with all malice. And, and be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgiving. Why? Why be kind and compassionate, forgiving one another? Because that's what God has done to us. So, so, so let's zoom in here, okay? We're not going to do this by sheer force of will. We're not just going to will ourselves into this. But we're going to receive, this is my invitation to you, in this toxic, anxiety-ridden, ragey political climate, how do we show compassion and kindness to one another, forgiving even our enemies? Just as Christ forgave us, how do we do that? We turn to the cross. We center our hearts on who Jesus is. We recognize and remember that we have been enemies of God, but because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross through his death, burial, and resurrection, through his finished work, he gifts us this grace gift of his favor, his delight, his forgiveness, and a reunion with him. Not based on what we have done, but based solely on the work that he has done. That's why they call it grace. And so if we center our hearts on who Jesus is and what we have received from him and what he has done for us and what he is calling us to, it is out of that spirit of the living God that indwells with each one of us that we can enter into this rate, this rate, this outraged, anxiety-written, toxic political culture and actually do something different like being compassionate forgiving each other just as Christ has forgiven us, being kind to one another. When we speak the truth, which we ought to do, we do so recognizing, I want them to feel that I love them as well as hear what I have to say. And we do so when we're anchored unto the truth of who Jesus is. So I want to invite you into that. In just a moment, we're going to take communion. And when we take communion... When we take of the bread and we take of the juice, we remember the, the broken body and shed blood of Jesus, which was broken and shed for the forgiveness of sin. And in this moment, we have an opportunity to center ourselves in remembering who Jesus is and what he has done. Do you know that much of this anxiety and rage, do you know what's actually going on deep within each one of us that brings that out? It's oftentimes fear. Fear that we're not going to get. Fear that we're going to lose. Fear that the other is going to hurt us. It's fear. And you know one of the most frequent commands given in Scripture? Fear not. How do I fear not in this age of outrage and chaos? Well, I anchor myself. I center myself on the finished work of Jesus Christ. I spend time with Jesus. I try to listen for his spirit operating within me. Now, I want to invite you to do that now. So would you please prepare your communion elements? They're available in the back of the seat in front of you. If, if today you'd rather not take communion, that's totally fine. I would just ask that you would take this moment to...
be quiet, uh, sit quietly and consider the things that you've heard today. For those of you uh, who are joining us online, uh, would you obtain some elements that represent the body and blood of Jesus? And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a moment to reflect. And then I'll lead us together as a church family in the taking of communion. And in this time of reflection, maybe it's a time for us for thinking about the last week. Perhaps for others of us, it's simply a time of repentance and confession. Still for others, maybe it's a time of pleading with the Lord or seeking his wisdom. Wherever you're at today, I just want to invite you to use this time as the Spirit guides you and to be attentive to the Spirit of God even now in this moment, recognizing that Christ is present with us right now in this moment. And so would you reflect and then I'll lead us in the taking of communion. Let us pray together. Lord Jesus, we know that communion is something that we do together as a diverse group of people from different backgrounds and perspectives, unified Jesus in you. And we know that you welcome everyone to your table. In this taking of communion, we recognize that you have called us to live according to the new covenant in Christ, that we are to live as citizens of the kingdom of God, practicing his values on earth as it is in heaven. Even now, Lord, as we prepare our hearts, we recognize that we often fail in this regard. And so, Lord, we pray and confess that we have not always lived according to your kingdom. We have often propagated injustice and evil. We have often fostered disunity, practicing favoritism, elevating our own concerns and preferences over others. Moreover, we have often failed to show hospitality, love, and grace. We have often not lived the fruit of your spirit, and we confess this before you now. And we repent. We turn from this sin, and we turn back to you, Jesus, knowing that you will never leave us or forsake us. We ask that by the power of your spirit, you would continue to shape us into your image. As we take of this communion today, Lord, we proclaim your finished work on the cross, your death and your resurrection. We cling to you knowing that you are the one who brings salvation, forgiveness, reconciliation, and in you, one day, all will be restored. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. After giving thanks, he said, this is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Would you take and eat?
In the same way, he took of the cup, saying, this is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you for the forgiveness of sin. Do this in remembrance of me. Would you take and drink? Let us pray together. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks for your grace and your mercy. We pray that by the power of your spirit, you would continue to unify us as a diverse bunch of misfits, bound together not by our common affinities, but bound together by your love and grace, Jesus, made known to us through your death, burial, and resurrection. And in this toxic, outraged, anxious environment that we live in, may we be agents of peace, reconciliation, compassion, and kindness, that when we speak truth, that we, should, we would do so, that all who would hear us would feel loved. And Lord, help us to forgive just as you have forgiven us. We ask these things, Jesus, knowing that you love us and you are powerful to fulfill your promises to us. And so we entrust ourselves to you and to your care. It's in your name we pray, amen.